Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> I see a number of people who are actually in the meditation intensive with us here in Austin, where I am. I'm in the, the Dokusan room, the practice discussion room, where we see, see folks. Um, and I actually have a live human being with me here. <laughs> My buddy, Peg. <laughs> the first time we've um, taught together in over four years in the same place here in Austin, at least. So it's a lovely, it's a lovely time. So let's uh, enjoy our sitting as uh, other our folks arrive and we uh, gather ourselves. You know, the, the formal name for uh, a Zen retreat is uh, a session, which means to collect the mind or the heart. And so that's what we'll be doing the next few minutes. <clears throat> a different sound of the bell.
Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Uh, I always feel like I have to make an apology. Uh, those of you who are in the intensive are going to hear some things that you heard <laughs> on uh, on Sunday night. Um, but sometimes it's useful to hear things again, um, and it's adapted for our, our time today. I really want to specifically focus on how we think about and um, offer ourselves to each other in, in inquiry um, according to the Bodhisattva vow. Our retreat that we're in right now is focusing on a particular piece that is very dear in the Soto tradition and, and also the Rinzai, written by a monk that lived in the 17th century, Tori Zinje. Uh, his personal vow the Tori Zinji's Bodhisattva vow. Um, and so uh, this is what we're immersed in right now. And what's important to remember, for those of you that, that may not be immersed in these kind of things quite so, so much, is that the Bodhisattva vow in general is the foundation of the Mahayana practice. That's, that's the, the, the key. The exemplar of Mahayana practice is the Bodhisattva. And it's expressed in this way through our Zen lineage. And so we offer these vows. I'm going to screen share in a little bit so you can take a look at the ones that maybe you're not so familiar with. We vow to live our lives and to be lived by everything so we can realize uh, the sense of profound um, interbeing, interdependence with everything and everyone. And as we do, our understanding of beings includes not only you know like all of you and everyone around us but all the parts of us inside that make up the constructed and and very vital and necessary self we call a personality but as we embody the bodhisattva vow our minds and hearts open through practice the archetypal um, image of um, uh, compassion, Avalokiteshvara, it is said that Avalokiteshvara hears the cries of the world, the compassion of hearing the suffering, hearing the cries of the world. So that means that archetypal part that lives in us, that's practicing is listening and looking and feeling the suffering around us. Dogen used another term, he said that practice means to take the backward step and turn your light inward to meet the cries inside. It's not all that that means, but it's, it's an indication that there are beings here, all the parts of us, and there are beings outside. And like the breath in Zazen, you know, that moves in and out, inner world, outer world, we, we take it as a duality, but really it's the unending flow of compassion and wisdom is just one world. And my experience, I don't know about you, but my experience is this is what actually functions in these weekly meetings, and part of why I think um, many of you have said you come to them. In India, these kind of meetings in the early, um, even pre-Buddhist time was called a satsang, which translates as meeting in truth. So if we meet in the, the, the truth of the moment, we do hear the cries of the world, 
and we do notice inner things that they get stirred. So <clears throat> what I'd like to do today, you're going to get a lot of questions which are going to come at you too fast for you to answer them. But what we're doing is we're taking a bodhisattva inventory, okay? Um, your own private inventory. We're going to review the practices of a bodhisattva, what the classical practices are, what the qualities of a bodhisattva life manifest as, and then the place of vow in sustaining those practices and nourishing those qualities. So we have the practices, the expressed qualities, and the vow that supports the practices and sustains the qualities, okay? Okay, here's, <clears throat> do you ever get those things um, probably online where you have, they want you to do an evaluation of something you've done, like rent a car or something? You, you want to take the, so this is like, this is the first page, okay? The paramitas, many of you know these, the paramitas are the practices of the bodhisattva. Um, they're generally, uh, there are various ways they're spoken about, but generally we think of them as, as six of them. There's generosity, a morality or ethics, that's where the precepts fall, a vitality and spiritual energy, meditation or, or concentration, <clears throat> and um, prajna or wisdom, and patience, forgot patience. Thank God Peg is here, she reminded me. <clears throat> And we often uh, think of them like the breath in a certain way. Generosity is this expansive opening to the world. More morality and ethics, you know, kind of focuses us. Spiritual energy and vitality is this uh, deep spiritual energy that, that enlivens our lives. And patience is its container. Uh, we have meditation and concentration and the vast unending wisdom. So sometimes it's a little easier to remember them in pairs, pairs like that. So here's your question. You ready? Take your inventory. Here we go. Number one is generosity. Do you ever notice when you come online for inquiry that some sense of generosity begins to flow on Tuesdays, even in anticipation, both ways, both maybe you feel generous to the people that you meet, faces you recognize, or you feel others are being generous as they come forward and offer their questions or comments? And see, I won't be able to hear all your answers, but I'm going to look at your faces. So um, sometimes a nod or a wink or something is nice. You know, I get a response. So I think I notice these kinds of generosities. So it looks like those kind of things are moving. Uh, second one, morality or ethics. Are these meetings on Tuesday typically full of what I would call like good character? Possibility. Are they generally respectful, full of kindness and care? It, it, seems, it seems like they, they are quite a bit. So that's the precepts. And number three, uh, spiritual energy and vitality. I know this because I see it happening. When people start coming on the screen, we feel this side of aliveness that begins to open, even online, within our connections, the energy of um, anticipation, and sometimes inspiration. I just did it with my hands. And I'm watching Donna because she's watching me, of course. The upwelling of aspiration, you know, that, that rises up in our bodies. All that is spiritual energy that we're talking about. These aren't esoteric things. Um, patience, the one that I patiently forgot. Do you notice that, or you may be a little more willing to allow the time and space for your own unfolding and the unfolding of other people, even though sometimes you might feel impatient as they're speaking, I know, even when it seems awkward, but this sense of patience is called up to meet what's arising with uh, curiosity. So patience is, is alive in this stream. Now in our brief meditation in the beginning, we sit usually for five or 10 minutes, not, not quite so long. Do you sense this kind of settling presence of focusing of your mind and heart? This, this is meditation and concentration, alive in relationship. 
And as we see these things and notice and note them and speak about them and feel them in our bodies, um, you feel your presence in inquiry. That's actually a wisdom or prajna, the clear seeing starting to emerge. And so I know I'm leading the witnesses here a little bit with these questions, um, but I have you captured and so I can say these things. The, the paramitas are the practices of bodhisattva. We practice with generosity, with ethical behavior, with vitality and patience, with meditation and wisdom. And I hope that you see by these simple questions as we're taking our inventory, we actually do this. This isn't something out there or something um, spiritual or in a Zen temple or something. This is what we're doing. Okay, as we do it, what are the qualities that a bodhisattva's life demonstrates? They're sometimes, um, they're talked about as the Brahma Viharas or the four immeasurables. And these are things that you are familiar with. Uh, compassion, uh, loving kindness, um, equanimity, and sympathetic joy. Those are the, the four traditionals, the four Brahma Viharas. So let's start with the last one for a second. This is page two of our inventory. Do you ever notice when we come to inquiry, a sense of joy that spontaneously starts to happen as you meet each other, even when you're not speaking, including just kind of watching the brightness of a face or you see a name and you hope the picture will show up. Yeah, there's that, that joy in the happiness of another. Uh, you're happy, sure. But also when you see someone come forward and maybe they're touched by something or they have an insight and they express it, you feel the uplift, the, the joy. There's not just your joy, it's the joy of another. And as you do that, do you notice that your body reacts? Your heart moves in a certain way. Your mind maybe expands a little bit. Maybe you relax. Maybe you feel more ease, more spaciousness as sympathetic joy begins to move. Well, this is the foundation of equanimity. It doesn't mean kind of a, a bland Teflon non-reactivity. It means you have some balance in the midst of it all, but it's fueled by this kindness and care that flows. And of course that leads us to the third. It, it's certainly not difficult for me to feel this basic friendliness and kindness when we come, come online, even I would venture to say love as we encounter each other's presence each week online. And this is loving kindness, it's unconditional friendliness, uh, this sort of loving presence, even that we call it in Hakomi. Uh, a very important um, like strand in those qualities of bodhisattva energy. And finally, although it's often listed as the first one, I think it's useful to speak about it now, in this way, can you feel your heart opening? Do you feel this willingness to kind of lean in? I don't mean just with your body, but you might feel it that way, to meet each thing and each person, what arises with each person as they come forward. It's sort of, sometimes I feel it like a surge of care. Um, and even if you feel some irritation or you don't understand something or, or even bored or triggered by something that happens, can you also turn toward those parts of you with this same sense of curiosity and kindness and care? This is all compassion. We feel sympathetic joy in each other's movement, the equanimity, that begins to open as we sit together. A loving kindness, which is flows quite easily, I think, and I see in your smiles, and then the deep well of compassion that opens. So these are the qualities of a bodhisattva. And if my estimations are accurate in our inventory, they do exist here already. So if you're practicing the practices of a bodhisattva in inquiry, and you're embodying and expressing the, the qualities, that those practices support and encourage, guess what? We're all bodhisattvas in practicing. <laughs> that, that's not something in the future. 
And the way that that is sustained and deepened and goes out into the world is through our vow, through the Bodhisattva vow. And many of you are quite familiar with this, um, but I am going to screen share just for a moment. <clears throat> because some of you are uh, less familiar with the um, our former or wording. Did that come up for you? See that? Good. Okay. So say them, say them with me. It'll just be me and Peg here, but you can listen to us and you say them with me, okay? Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Beings are numberless. We vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. We vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. We vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. We vow to embody it. Beings are numberless. This vow frees them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. This vow ends them all. Dharma gates are boundless. This vow enters them all. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. This vow embodies it. So not only did I um, <clears throat> ask you to engage in this inventory, uh, I tricked you into making a vow. You just said it. But really, you've just voiced something as an exploration, really. This is our shared vow to remember the first one, to liberate everyone. I'm going to say it in terms of inquiry. The first one was beings are numberless. It's about liberation. To liberate everyone on the screen and all the parts inside of us on this side of the screen. That second one about delusions. We just vowed to go beyond delusion. We're not exactly going to get rid of them as long as we have a mind and a body and we live in this, this uh, relative world. But we can go beyond personal preference and open the larger life that we all share. And the third one about Dharma gates, it's a lovely term. When we meet in this way, do we turn toward each opportunity, each face, each voice offered for further awakening? And can we utilize our struggles and our stumbles and our celebrations all as opportunities to assist each other in growing up and waking up? And then this last one about the Buddha's way being unsurpassable and about embodying it. When we show up, and when you click your camera on, even if you don't, but let's say that, you're saying, I now offering my body as an example of awakened life. Here I am with all my flaws and all my beauty, but I'm going to show up because this is Buddha manifesting, you and me, all of us. So having affirmed this vow, which you uh, quite willingly took with me, we see that it's a relational aspiration. I vow, we vow, this vow does something mysterious by taking it. So not only is it a relational aspiration to include everyone, it actually requires everyone. It's not like, oh, it'd be nice if you would come along. No, the whole thing is about the requirement of, of offering ourselves to the world and letting the world offer themselves to us in receiving each other, both sides. And having actually given voice to this profound potential, which is an act of 
embodiment, you might feel something. And so here's your inventory now after the Bodhisattva vow. It, it may be a strange way to say it, but do you notice maybe a little bit more liberation by this opening experience? Like something opened up or something moved a little bit? The work of a Bodhisattva, I, I love the way that Peter Hershock says, is the Bodhisattva's job is to help turn each situation, person, relationship, moment, just a little bit more towards awakening. Not dramatic, just a little bit more towards freedom. And if you said in your mind, when I asked the question, do you feel something moving or a little more liberated? How did you know? What data did you pay attention to? What happened in your body? Or did you think something, feel something? Or some parts more freed up with a little more, little more breath? So the first one about freeing beings it might be moving a little bit, actually. The second one about delusions, when you were listening to me, we were saying, and you're looking at the screen maybe, and all this is going on, I bet you couldn't stay with a habitual delusion during that time because you're busy doing what I'm asking you to do. Or, so did your habitual delusions soften in abeyance for a moment? This is the function of forms and practice in Zen. Can you feel yourself unblending from these habitual perspectives? Uh, that feel like you, but aren't really as free or liberated as they could be. This is going beyond delusion, just simply in everyday life, just in our practices here. And the third line that has to do with Dharma gates, I ask you to, to go with me, I ask you to step with me. Did you notice that maybe you are sometimes able to step through an open gate of the moment here or other times? into the opportunity we all offer each other when we arrive like this as spiritual friends. Maybe I would hope you feel uh, maybe even a greater willingness to turn toward each other and towards your tender inner world equally. Equally with curiosity, with patience, humility, care. Remember I spoke about those a couple of weeks ago. So this is stepping through the Dharma gate. And then lastly, this thing about embodying the Buddha way, what's it like to embody even for a moment? Do our best, this way of being together online. You don't have to like become a Buddha. Em embodying presence in these ways, even online, I say even because sometimes people get caught by that. These embodied practices shine through and they nourish us and they encourage us and they reflect back our Buddha nature. If you look at the faces on the screen, those are little mirrors that are showing back your Buddha nature. You even have ones in the past. You see, there, there's Joko and there's Suzuki Roshi looking back at you. <clears throat> so in inquiry, we endeavor to sort of open up and unblend from our immersion in this virtual reality of our habitual and automatic mind states and embodiment, the ways that we typically organize experience. And we begin to see what is unfolding rather than being continually enfolded within the self-generated internal experience. Did you get that? We began to notice what's unfolding all the time, rather than just being enfolded in a world that we've created that actually separates us from the wholeness. We come to, to know how we habitually organize experience in this kind of more limited awareness, and that limited awareness that's automatic, we call reality it's only a little piece. So we come together as spiritual friends on Tuesdays and engage in this kind of, um, you know, Ron Kirsch used to call it assisted self-discovery and mindfulness, which supports this realization, this kind of release. And we discover there are no bad parts in there. 
they're only partial perspectives. Protectors trying to help, managers trying to protect us in some way, operating with these limited perspectives. Exiles tucked away because so many of us carry past hurts or traumas. Other parts exile because they carry so much, such powerful feelings that if they were released, the system might be a little threatened. So all of that is there. So right now, pause and just take a deep breath. Maybe even come inward just for a moment away from the screen, knowing that everyone's there, but and as you notice an exhale, remember beings are numberless. As you inhale, parts are numberless. Exhaling, beings are numberless. Inhaling, parts are numberless. Delusions are endless. Confusion and contractions might always be triggered. Even as we open to this larger container of life that our practice offers us. Dharma gates are boundless. Opportunities to learn from the present never cease. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher we chant. This is the endless potential for the Dharma to manifest as our life. And Buddha's way is truly unsurpassable. It's the heart of every part in us. Every part of us that we think is not awake, it's even troublesome and painful. If it was freed from its extreme positions and its burdens, at the heart of it would be Buddha because everything has the nature of a Buddha. There's nothing but Buddha nature. Reality manifesting is just this moment. And real, realizing it as the way of compassion. Everything is teaching the Dharma all the time. We just have to open our hearts and minds, our eyes and ears to receive it as such. And the wisdom that you're seeking and that I'm seeking is this reality we're living in all the time. It's in every act of perception, everything we see, hear, feel. It's in the rocks and trees and birds and clouds and computers and in each other. It's in everything we do in our practice. And it's right here in our simply being kind to each other. So pay attention and live your life. And raise your hand if you'd like. That was quick, Nelda. But you were primed, you know. I was primed. And do you know what primed me? What? Was that first image of our ancestors behind you in the photographs. Notice? Yes. And then know, the knowing when you introduced Peg that our contemporary teachers are before us. And then knowing that the statue of Kuan Yin, Alavikitishvara, is right there in the corner by the door. And I just was bursting up. <laughs> So, so I'm so grateful, and I also know that our future leaders are right here in front of me. Absolutely. And so grateful. And we're all embodying that. We all help each other along. And there's so one more. Thank you for that inspiring uh, response. Yeah. There's something else that I don't know if you've seen before. I'm going to show this because it's interesting. You know, those, um, those beautiful things that Peg and I hold when we're leading, uh, we receive those in Dharma transmission, has a certain thing. <clears throat> Here's the one that I fashioned and that we used um, when we both were lay teachers um, without Dharma transmission. And it's made out of a, um, a Texas cedar tree. And it's kind of big and a little bit clumsy and rough. And it, you have to really pay attention to hold it and use it because I thought that was a really important lesson. We're ordinary and sometimes clumsy, a little rough, you know, but you can make it beautiful and, and pay attention and treat it well. And suddenly it's a sacred item. Mm -hmm. Hmm? 
Oh, on the, I don't know if you can see on the end. That's the chop for Peg's Dharma name and my Dharma name on top of each other. Oh, how beautiful. I want to add one more thought and then okay. I want I have just ordered a book by a person named Gaber Mate. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, uh -huh. The book is trauma. Yes, the book's titled The Myth of Normal. And there's something that caught my eye in one of his talk or caught my ear and my eye in one of his talks when he was talking about this book. And, and this is what he said. The lungs exist only because what they needed pre-existed them. And he went on to say, and children, children, here's what they need. And he named all the things that children need to nurture them and grow them um, into mm -hmm. full, complete human beings. He said, and all of those things, and, and children come into the world only because all the things they need pre-exist them and are here right now. Right. So let's bring that. And that reminded me of our practice. The way that you know that you were supported by all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas throughout space and time, with that old language, the way you know that is because you're alive. Mm -hmm. wow. Everything is supporting us. Well, it finally clicked. <laughs> right. Right. Thank you, Nelda. Thank you. So when we have five minutes left and there are three people in line, you'll think, why didn't I hand, put my hand up earlier? <laughs> are, you, are you still contemplating your inventory? I don't know, Rosemary. Flint and everyone, and thank you so much. Um, you asked you that again. What's that? I heard all that again. Just yeah. remember the inquiry. Yeah. Well, no, no. What you said was was right. You know, it. it but we're not the same as we were this morning, were we? So. Or two days ago. Right. Yeah. Um, so you asked, how do we know when yes. um, things are? that you're saying is huh. how do you know yeah how do you know well i found myself sitting up taller and taller as you spoke mm -hmm. and um the thing that um sort of added to that was when you pointed to the the whole the whole group something mm -hmm. you were saying about parts or I'm, I'm not even remembering what it was and then you know i started connecting more you're, you're a very good speaker so it's it's easy just to focus on you so when you brought it further out, that was very, very valuable and enhanced what I was feeling. So, and that's part of the way we know, and and why I suggested we think of these two um, kind of portals in a way, the Avalokiteshvara one about hearing the cries of the world, and the Dogma making taking the backward step. Sometimes we know because we can we feel the embodiment, but sometimes we know because we see it in the face of someone we love or care about, or that is difficult for us, or we're confused by, and we need each other in that way. And both both uh, systems need each other. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. for this kind of immediacy, right. Thank you, Flint. Thank you so much. And we have Ryan. Flint. Hi. Good to have you near. I had, um, can you hear me okay? I can. Okay. Uh, Only across we, town uh, from each other. Right. <laughs> um, in the precepts class, we were talking about the precept of not gossiping. And Kim and I were, we have family in town, so we're sharing stories about the family and our interactions with the family. And you're mentioning Kim, your wife, right? Yes, Kim, my wife. Kim here that people know, so just make sure you... Yes, thank you. And I was like, is this, is this gossip? Is this the feeling? Because it seemed like there's just a vowing, hey, this is the feeling that I'm feeling about this interaction or this person. 
And then maybe there's some sort of trans, well, does it turn into a judgment or a hardening, or is it just an expression of energy that's actually being witnessed as helpful? So I'm, I'm wondering if you could help kind of clarify that sense of gossip and how to, to have skillful means with it. Well, I would, I would back up first. Your willingness to ask yourself the question, is this gossip? That's called practicing the precepts. That's the essence, is the, the wakeful attention to what's going on, not about following a rule. Hmm. Like, hmm. And then there's the question, which, you know, Rosemary, like, how do you know? Mm -hmm. And you said, something doesn't feel exactly, uh, even if you can't name it. Yeah. It's a little off. And so you stayed curious. And then you asked the next question. Is this wholesome or leading somewhere? Or is this now transforming into something else like criticism? Yeah. So all of that is called practicing the precepts. But, it, but when I sort it out and name it, it's the attitude of the willingness to ask question instead of thinking you're certain. Mm. Willingness to pay attention to the cues, what you think, what you feel, what your senses are, what your body's doing. And to, and to ask, is this wholesome or unwholesome? Is this the highest and best use of the Dharma or is this self-centered? And sometimes our questioning we think is a problem, but actually it's the solution. I had a practice discussion with Lance not soon, uh, not long after I was ordained. And um, those of you that have taken vows will appreciate this. I know Peg's going to chuckle when I say it. <laughs> because I went to her and I said, I think we made a mistake. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this is way too, you know. I don't feel prepared. I don't think I do. You know, I went on and on with my, uh, Peg was talking about the other day, the, about being a writer, the Valley of Doubt, you know? Mm. And she looked at me and she said, that's why I ordained you. Mm. Because I wasn't certain. And I didn't take it as a completion of anything. I realized it was a big Dharma gate that had been opened for me. And there was an invitation called a ceremony and I had stepped through it. And then I found myself there with everything that comes with it. Mm. And that's not any different than what you're just describing. My story may be a little more dramatic or something, but that's how we do it. That's what staying awake means. How's this going? Not as a constant evaluation, because that could slip into self-criticism and judgment too. It's a very slippery slope. But if you meet something with that kind of generosity we were talking about, yeah, and some some patience, wanting to stay with the precepts, but with some energy of staying present, keeping our our focus and our eye open to wisdom and concentration, all those things are so that we don't lose our sense of compassion or just everyday loving kindness. We stay not quite so rocked, a little more equanimity and maybe the sympathetic joy in seeing the other person as, as beautiful. All those qualities and practices, see, are all flowing together. And what you were doing is asking me a question about how to do something, but in the process, you were actually demonstrating it all. Hmm. That's my point today. It's all happening now in you, in everyone, if you know how to look. And that's just our job, you know, to hmm. hold up the mirror. Thank you. Uh, did I respond to your question? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you for you asking. It gave me a chance to talk about that in a way that's really useful, I think. Thanks, Ryan. We have Jessica and John Eric. Oh, they went. Where did Every they way. go? Hang on. They were Steinbombered. Oh, there they are. There they are again. <laughs> Sorry, I was over functioning. I, I lowered my <laughs> one hand. <laughs> Sorry, Maria. Oh, 
Flint, I just wanted to thank you enthusiastically for offering this again, because I've been chewing on this so much as you, the first night in the, as you unfolded this in the, the first night of the, um, of the intensive, I just was there just with tears in my eyes the whole entire time. And it's continued to work on me and I've continued to unpack this and it, it just feels um, beautiful and, and really big and, and um, you I, are. <laughs> beautiful and really big. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> and this is a way for us, and you're participating now, and including everyone who isn't in the intensive into the intensive. We're bringing everybody in. Well, I wanted to share this dream that I had that. <laughs> It's, it, it, it's hard to kind of convey, but I'll just give you the scene. It was John Eric standing there reading Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow. And what came to me as he, and, and this is because we've been practicing it in this practice period. So I've gotten to see him do that quite a bit. Um, but what came to me as the dream was happening is the beautiful way that you and Peg rewrote the the ways that we say the Bodhisattva vow. And, and it was this embodied felt sense and my words are gonna fall short, but I'll do my best. And it was, you know, that in the initial stages of practice with this great aspiration, I am vowing to free all beings. I'm, you know, I'm vowing, I'm vowing. I, and then I run out of energy and I, and I completely lose faith and hope and everything. And I give up and then I rest back into the Sangha and then we are vowing together and then at some point there's this realization that this is always an already true and that and that third yeah. part of the verse and so um this is only a small amount of what i am unpacking right now but it, feel, it feels but all of that went through you in that moment as you were in the dream yes and eric read the vow yeah in a very do you have a copy of it with you uh uh, no, but I can pull that. That's okay. It's just, I was thinking of that last bit about then on each moment, mm -hmm. I thought they would grow a lotus. I mean, that's, there's that beautiful inspirational part at the end, even though it's gone through a, a piece that's like really tough. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And that, and you're experiencing that too. Yes. Yes. And it has a lot to do with what you were speaking to about the inner world and the outer world. And, and, um, so even to us is inner and outer. We say it that way, but that's part of why it's hard to talk about from the dream, isn't it? Because the inner world and the outer world, suddenly there's, that kind of falls away. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Cassie. Didn't I just see you? We did. <laughs> <laughs> this is so great. You were just here. Uh -huh. um, so I'm experiencing a polarity that I'm trying to get to ease up, I guess. And that is um, how, you know, really kind of settling into that practice is life. That practice isn't like something other than life. And um, like um, in the in a ninety day practice period, and like day two, woohoo! Practice, oh, daily reading, you know, and have that kind of just greedy joy of experiencing all of that and having that come forward. And then day yeah, eighty four, like, oh, daily hmm? big appetite for it in the beginning. Yeah, and then day eighty four, it's just like oh, there's a daily reading that's going to take five minutes. I don't. I'm not ready for it yet. You know, I, I, and then, oh, I've missed a few daily readings and it's, you know, why why, or, or it's not just why bother, but just like, oh, I'll get to it. Or, or there's, there's, there is a pushing back on it. And so I'm trying to figure out why, why, why can I like 
love and want and enjoy and feel so much aliveness in it and also like have something that's pushing it back well you know i don't don't apparently you're human is that just human describing every single person on here if you look there a lot of people are chuckling because it's like yeah that's how it goes uh there's the honeymoon like yay we're here and then it's like oh you know it's it's ho-hum and then it's like this kind of a pain um it's it's very very common i'm not trying to blow it off or minimize it by saying this but i want you to know that you're in good company you're not different there's not something you're doing wrong or special actually about this practice is not hard to do remembering to do it and having the willingness to continue to do it is what's hard for all of us because it's not what we want all the time and we slide back into habit patterns and things that are automatic and it's interesting how it's almost like a slippery slope we just slide back down to the in the ditch again and we wanted to be up on the middle way I mean, the vitality of life. Why do you not want that all the time? But the it idea of I know. That's something to explore. And the fact that you notice this and that you ask the question and that you keep coming back to practice yeah. is the practice. That is the practice. There are days when it's kind of a pain, you don't want to do it. When you walked into the back room the other day and saw me for the first time and I held my arms out, what happened? Yeah, you made animal noise. I cried. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I cried and, you know, and I needed to immediately take my glasses off because I wanted to hug and bury my head, you know, in in your loving arms. That was right off in the beginning, right. And then we kind of discussed them. We were walking, Ken, we're doing things, you know. It's not because that's not there. But this is what human beings do. And so we remember, and then we can encourage each other. You can ask this question. Other people can hear you ask it, and they're encouraged by it. And they go, oh, okay. You know, Kathy's, Cassie's really steady. She's been here a long, long time. It's like, oh, she feels that too, huh? Okay. So <clears throat> there was a line in the vow that you wrote and i don't have yeah. it what's the one about silence that line oh it was um i vow to listen to the quiet to the quiet until i uh stop naming the things i hear yes that is one of the most beautiful expressions of the absolute in everyday practice that I've heard, it was really inspiring to me. Say it again, so people can hear it. I vow to listen to the quiet until I stop naming the things I hear. Until you stop making everything into something that you have or don't have. Oh. Okay. So thank you for your teaching. And let's continue on the days we want to and the days that we don't want to and the days we forget. Okay. We'll continue. All right. Okay. Let's recite the four practice principles to remind us about how this goes. Okay. Is this directly related to what Cassie was just talking about? Caught in the self-centered dream only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts exactly the dream each moment life as it is the only teacher being just this moment compassion's way caught in the self-centered dream only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts exactly the dream each moment life as it is the only teacher being just this moment compassion's way caught in the self-centered dream only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts 
exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you, everyone. Good to be with you. Glad I had a buddy hanging with me here. <laughs> we'll see a number of you back uh, this evening for our, our evening sitting and uh, Dharma activity. And for the rest of you, welcome to the intensive. <laughs>